it's Phil Quinn. I'm introducing Andrea Vance as our special guest author in this occasional series we're doing as part of the Featherston Booktown podcast, which, or to say many of you might be exaggerating, but certainly a handful of you enjoyed when we rolled out a series of interviews prior to the Booktown events. By the way, what a terrific festival this year. Andrea, great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. No, you're more than welcome. Andrew and I are friends, full disclosure, but uh, <laughs> hopefully that just contributes to a, a warm and engaging and inviting conversation for the rest of you. Not too many. It doesn't stop you being tough on me, though. You uh, tell me, you always tell me when I get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, we'll try and avoid too many in jokes, uh, but at the same time, you know, we'll be full and frank as always. Andrew, you're a <laughs> senior journalist at Stuff. You're a household name in the country, so this introduction's a little bit redundant, but let's go through the motions. You were born in Northern Ireland. You worked in the press gallery of the New Zealand Parliament for nearly a decade, first with Stuff and then Television New Zealand. You spent seven years as an investigative journalist with News of the World. You were night news editor of The Scotsman, which sounds like a great job. You have, it was the best. Yeah, I loved it. You have won... Well, you've won a heap of awards, including at the most recent voyages, where you were deservedly, in my humble opinion, named best columnist. Um, you're also a press fellow of Wolfson College, University of Cambridge, which saw you travel there, I gather, to study. And I find this subject uh, heading fascinating, source and information protection. Yes. Yeah. So that might come up during the course of our conversation. But today we're here to talk to you in your capacity as author, uh, specifically about your excellent and well-received book, Blue Blood, which uh, tells the story of the National Party from just about, just prior, I think, is this right, John Key stepping down <coughs> to eventually Christopher Luxon uh, ascending to the leadership. <coughs> your book received both warm critical acclaim but also pretty good sales, certainly by New Zealand standards, for good reason. It was uh, obviously a tempestuous period and it was uh, told in a riveting, almost sort of novelistic way. It's a rare combination to get that kind of critical success alongside good book sales for a non-fiction work like that. There's hardly a, a huge market, let's be honest, in, in New Zealand for, for serious political non-fiction of the kind you produce. Why do you think your book in particular landed well? Um, I mean, I think I, I I honestly had no idea. It was the first book I had written, obviously, and I had no idea how it would do. I had a, I had a feeling it was like a, a niche subject. And, I mean, I know politics from my own my work, my day job, always writes really well people are really interested in politics and I kind of have a bit of a theory on this um which I think I've probably said to you before because I you know I don't have that many theories so (laughs) (laughs) um but I I kind of feel like New Zealand doesn't have a celebrity culture really and most of the big celebrities go overseas you know they only come back to do yoga retreats or shoot a film or whatever and so I think that by default our politicians um have become kind of New Zealand's celebrity genre you know like they're the they're the people that we talk about the people we gossip about they're the kind of the soap stars of of the real world in New Zealand so I 
I think that's maybe why we we see them every night on the television. We mm-hmm. know who you know the not all of them, but you know the the front benchers. Most of us know who they are. We'd recognise them in straight. Um, so I think I think New Zealanders are attracted to politics. But yeah, I was surprised that it 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 was uh, you know I it was surprised that it that it did so well. Um, to be honest, <laughs> but, you know, I never. I'm always surprised at these things. I never, you know, I always write things and send them out into the ether and it's always it's always a pleasant but nice surprise. Um, but I set out to write a book that was, um, like, I love reading. I devour books. Of, like, I'll read the back of a cornflakes packet if there's nothing at hand, you know. Um, and I, I wanted people to, like, pick up the book and because it, it was a, such an exceptional period in mm. in our political history and our times, and and being in the middle of it, covering it was it was insanely fast. So I just I wanted people to have a book that they would sit down on a Sunday afternoon with a glass of pino in front of the fire and just want to while away the afternoon and not put it down. I wanted something that was really really readable, not an academic text, not complicated, just. Just a, you know, like a like a highlight of the day, really. Yeah. Look, I, just just quickly on 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 your theory, it 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 does remind me of an of a great boss I had, uh, who was a senator in Australia, uh, Robert Ray, and uh, he he once described Canberra, but I think it could be applied to equally to the Wellington scene uh, as Hollywood for ugly people. Yes, I heard this show politics, this show business for ugly people. I think that's true. Not yeah. that our politicians are ugly. We would never no, say such a terrible I, I thing. Think, I think, you know, maybe average people would be a better way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Average-looking people, at least. Did stepping away, because you left the press gallery in 2018. We've both worked in that precinct, although in the case of New Zealand, it was a long time ago for, for me. But still, it, it's it's a fairly all-consuming and disorienting kind of vortex so when politicians seem out of touch it's no accident right uh, and and the same can be said for staffers and i think gallery journalists and i think in the coverage uh, frankly some of the coverage some of the coverage some yeah so absolutely. Stepping away yeah. From that, looking back do you think that the fact you stepped away before you set out on the book made writing the book possible? Do you think it would have been harder? Do you think it would have been a, a better book or a worse book? What, what are your thoughts about that? I uh, know. I think you're right. I think it, I think it helped. It definitely helped. I think moving away, I, I love my time in the press gallery and it's so much fun. And um, I had so many incredible adventures and experiences doing it. And it teaches you a lot. Like you become an expert and, you know, sort of jack of all trades in many subjects very quickly because you have to. Similar to, I think, if, if you're a staffer as well. Um yeah, it taught me a lot, but um, but definitely. What, so one of the th- one of the things that uh, one of the things I think that the reason that it made me has made me a better journalist and able to write the book, I think, since I left, is because one of the things that was always patently obvious to me um, in the press gallery is that w- is that we were seeing this one dimensional picture. We only saw what was put in front of you, and. And particularly during the key years, it was a frustratingly difficult time to work as a journalist. To be fair, it was my first experience of working as a political journalist in New Zealand because I came in, I came to New Zealand after Key was elected. But I was just like, well, this is what's been presented to us. But I, I actually want to know what's happened behind the curtain. Like, I, clearly, there are other things happening that we're not getting told. And in the end, uh, after the 2017 election into 2018, I just got really 
by that stage I was working in TV and I just got really fed up of being essentially what I thought was a human microphone or a stenographer, you know, yeah. I was just kind of yeah. there to hold the mic and regurgitate what was told to me. And I was like, well, but I know this isn't really what's, mm. I know this is not the full story. I know this is not what's happening behind the scenes. And I've always been fascinated by the, like, you know, it's a bit of a, a cliche, like cliche headline these days, but the inside story or the yeah. untold story of, yeah. but that's yeah. what's interesting. That's yeah. what, because because life is, and especially in politics, things are never as simple as are presented. Um, and so, and so, I think if I was in that that bubble of the gallery, I would I would still be doing that, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to step out outside it. And um, I also wouldn't have had time to be practically, frankly, honest to sit down and have like yeah. sometimes four hour conversations with yeah. politicians in the in the course of writing the book. So, so for practical reasons, it helped, but also, um, yeah, it, it made me think of reporting politics in a different way. Well, we'll get onto sources in a, in, a, in a bit, but. But on that, do you think that um, being out of the gallery, as a, not not being a working gallery journalist, as you were interviewing and, and preparing the book, that made it easier for people to talk to you? Do you think that would have compromised the degree to which uh, politicians were willing to talk? Not, no, I don't. I honestly, I don't think so. I think um, I just I, I I don't I don't know why, but I always um. I never, I've never really had in, trouble in getting people to talk to me. Like I just, I'm like again, it's a cliche, but I'm Irish. I love to talk. Yeah. I love home conversations. It's what draws me to the job because it essentially is just talking to people all day, all long. Um, as you know, Phil, yeah. <laughs> I love to talk. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, and, but, and, but politicians and so, do too. Yeah, I mean, they, they do. Yeah, they do. And I yeah. think, um, I think, I think one of the things was that they were pre- that because I was prepared to sit down and talk to people for a long period of time about their experiences and really listen to what they had to say and and kind of drill down into why the things were done and who was at fault and who wasn't at fault and the accidents and the cock-ups and the conspiracies. Mm. And just really draw that out over a long period of time and talk to them as humans rather than with a microphone in front of their face, yeah. you know, yeah. um, peppering them with 100,000 gotcha questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. They were just they were conversations. And, God, I must have – I think I interviewed, like, I, I – my publisher and I totted it up. I think I interviewed something like fifty people for the book, but wow. it was it was it was a lot of talking. Um, so and now I've lost the thread of my thought. Sorry, but, what was well, the well, other part of that? You and I, you and I could talk about the challenges of you know reporting from from the press gallery and the nature of political coverage for hours on end. Because I, there's no point disparaging journalists at all for stuff. <laughs> and, and I think in 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 the gallery. Uh, environment, getting that balance right between being, as you say, a stenographer, being overly suggestible or Mm -hmm. naive on the one hand and being, and scepticism kind of devolving into sort of cynicism, Mm. (laughs) you know, that balance is really legitimately hard to strike, Mm. you know, and an experience is valuable but, but also... You know, it has it, it carries its own risks, so it's a very it's a very tricky environment to work from. Mm. But but I want to talk about the form, the genre you wrote in. The the as a, the title of this podcast is uh, the second draft of history, which is yeah. which is referencing the well known. You know, I don't know who originally said it, but the 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 notion that journalism is the first draft of history, and yeah. and and obviously historians uh, come into 
play later on, years after events often. But what you're doing is a form of kind of something that sits in between those two forms. And I guess the master, if you're looking at least in the English language world, the master of this form of the politically political nonfiction blockbuster, if you like, the ultimate TikTok account of periods of history, is Bob Woodward of the, <laughs> of the Washington Post. And he often... Uh, well, he sells a lot of books, but he often also attracts criticism, often, I think, motivated in part by envy, but I think there's some legitimacy there as well, for the way he seems to, in his books, privilege the voices and perspectives of the people who most readily cooperate with him. Mm. Uh, and that this can, uh, from a historian's point of view, say that's problematic, right? Um because people believe that those, those that that privileged relationship he has with his sources skews the coverage, mm. and can reframe events in a in a, in a misleading way. Um, I mean, I think that that to some extent that that's a risk that applies to all journalists. Uh, but I mm. think in this form in particular, it comes into being because you, it is you are so reliant on people being willing to talk to you and give you behind the scenes accounts in order to bring something to to the public that's fresh and, and 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 offers context that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm. Um, how do you sort of how do you deal with that as an as a as an author? <laughs> and I guess one way to put it is if somebody if, if a critical and, and I don't need you to name names, but have you had the experience where where critical actors in a narrative just won't talk? And how do you Whereas other people who might be tangential or might be mm. antithetical to that person or whatever are spilling their guts. Mm. Right? Uh, I find it hard to imagine you haven't had this scenario many times. <laughs> what, do, what do you do sort of to, to avoid the, 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 the perceived or real, however you look at it, Bob Woodward problem? Mm. Um, <laughs> not to ever consider myself myself in the same breath as Bob Woodward. No, it's a problem with absolutely, the form. Absolutely the, the yeah. master of the genre, as you say, inc- just incredible, um, you know, hero to all journalists. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, it, honestly, it is. I'm so pleased that you asked me this because no one's asked me this before, but it is something that I think about a lot, like even in everyday stories, because I, I think that one of the, the one of the critical jobs of, of a journalist is, as well as protecting sources, as you mentioned earlier, is to be fair. Like, I just think being fair is such a huge part of our job. Um, and so there were instances in the book where, so um, one thing I did was I made sure that I didn't just talk to the politicians because as you and I both know very well, politicians often have a very um, one-sided view of events. <laughs> um, and so I, I took care to talk to the people who worked around the both political and very importantly non-political staff. That was crucial, I think. That's interesting. And, non-political uh, staff. Give me, give me an example. Give me an example of that. Of non-political staff. The kind well, of staff you're talking about. Public servants, or are you talking about? Yeah, like people who yeah, work, yeah, yeah. In, work in ministerial offices, but not in a political capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So p- people that didn't, people that weren't political appointees, you know, right. sp- you know, as they call them in the in the UK, spads. You know, mm. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> so that's really that's really important, I think, to get to get the the to kind of match up what the protagonists were saying, what other people around them 
um, we're saying, and it also really helps to build up those details as well. Because you know, there's a I'm obsessed. I'm a details obsessive. I love to know what was hanging on the wall during a particular conversation, or what the color of someone's tie is. Or I don't know why, but I've always been pretty interested in what people were, are eating at the time. Well, maybe that, maybe <laughs> so, that explains why, to me, that one of the great strengths of your book is that is that sense of. Uh, almost, as I said, novelistic or novel-like kind of narrative that kind of demands attention to detail because they're the kind of things that those, cal- you know, the, the colour piece is really important to, to put put people in the room, you know? I think that's why, maybe that's why, because it shows that, I, you know, I was, well, wasn't in the room, but the people that I've talked to were in the room. So anyway, so to go back to your uh Back to your original question, I was really conscious of this, and there were a few people in the book who didn't want to talk to me, like two really good examples, which was really disappointing because I, I did, Bill English really wanted to talk to him, but he's got this policy that he doesn't comment on domestic politics, which is fair enough, fair, honourable, totally appreciate that, respect it. Um, so then I had to go to people who worked for him, people around him, people who knew him very well, um, to kind of get a gauge of what he was thinking, like why, 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 why did he seem so reluctant to take this job on that he'd supposedly coveted for his entire career. You know, just, just, just stuff like that. What was his state of mind? What was he thinking? Um, what did he think of Stephen Joyce? All those kind of things. Um, and then the other person was Nikki Kay, who of of all accounts of what happened um in the in the 50 was it 53 days of Mueller? <laughs> um the, the this very short Todd Mueller reign. She she came out uh, looking the worst almost, you know, like a lot of blame was slated onto her, which was really surprising because she was such a high flyer in the National Party, had a really good media presence, you know, presence, high profile, um, and was thought of as a really competent minister. So so that was really surprising to me. So then I had to go and speak to friends and people around her um, to try and not dilute the criticism, but just sort of round out the edges a little yeah. bit, you know, um, make it less sharp and try and try and get some sense of of a fairer picture towards her. I'm not sure I definitely achieved that. Like it's still pretty harsh on her, but you can only go as far as you can. You can only speak to the people who will speak to you. And 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 sure at that point then maybe you don't get the full picture. But as long as you keep trying, like I'm pretty persistent, you know. Yeah. Um and my, my I, I, of, I try my, a lot of avenues. Yeah. I'm a, a big believer in, in my journalism that the more people you talk to, the better the story will be. Yeah. So it's, it's really, especially when you're writing a 600-word story or whatever, it's very easy to, um, you know, this kind of style of journalism, you know, this kind of the, the comms world has got us into of emailing questions and getting written yeah. statements back. And it's so much better to do an interview with someone take the time, take an extra day to try and get hold of their story because it turns what is often a very, very black and white story into much, something much more grayer, much more nuanced and Absolutely. true to actually the real situation. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, but it's a that, good a, question. It is something that we wrestle with all the time. Totally. There's nothing more, you know, revealing than the whites of someone's eyes, I think, you know. <laughs> uh, and and with Nikki Kay, I thought, I, you know, I think anyone who read the book, it's... She, and and everyone should read the book if they haven't already. And um, we'll talk about where it's available in a minute. But um, in terms of the delta between reputation going in and reputation going out, <laughs> um, I think she she experienced the biggest divergence of all the characters that emerge. But I th- but that said, I didn't think by any means it it, w- it was um, 
it was a hatch job for what it's worth. That was my view of it. Um, how important is it, not so much for authors perhaps, but publishers in particular, that a book like this contains bombshells? Uh, previously unreported elements uh, that allow them to then build a marketing campaign around it, roll it out, maybe um, excerpt it in a paper, make the news to generate buzz around the book. And can that, and is there a danger that reaching for those uh, elements, again, skews the, the, the yeah. narrative? I never felt that, like, I never felt that pressure from the publisher. It was never laid down, you know, you must get X number of scoops or whatever. I think, I mean, it's it's naturally in me as a journalist. I am a, I'm a born and bred news yeah. hound, so I'm always... <laughs> I'm always looking for the angle in the story and in everything, everything. Um, so, so maybe it was just naturally assumed that that would come. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel any, I didn't feel any pressure at all to do that. Um, I think just, I just I, generally by the, um, generally by the nature of what we were, of what I was doing and what I was covering. I mean, a lot of it had already been, some of it, a lot of the roots of it had already been reported but just filling in the details and um was was more important to me and also and, and the motivations and the what really happened because what that's one of the things that, I mean there is it is a, it was a great pleasure obviously to get my hands on that um internal national party report like I'm not yeah. gonna lie I was yeah. like yes <laughs> and I I don't know if I should tell the story but it was nearly legaled out of the book which was very traumatic to yeah. me <laughs> um so so um so yeah so that that was it but um but the one thing that gives gave me more pleasure more satisfaction was was appending a an established kind of narrative yeah. that didn't necessarily happen to be true you know like um I guess maybe the, the most obvious one is, is you know, why did Jonky really resign, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and who knew when? Yeah. And actually, you know, it, it was as straightforward as it was as it was told to be. Like he was just worn out and he recognised that it was going to be a really hard slog to win the election and he made a political calculation and there was nothing more to it than that. And some people around him knew and I think one of the most interesting things to me about that period was that he'd floated the idea and then uh, and then a bunch of people in his, in his inner circle thought that they'd talked him out of it. They thought he, they'd got him over hump day or hump months or whatever. And uh, and then he just he came back from New York and, and well, the Kaikoura earthquake happened, so that um, put a spanner a little bit in his works. But, yeah, so that, that like, kind of ironing out the wrinkles or getting in behind what really happened was, was more of a satisfaction for me than kind of like, I've got this big scoop. Yeah. Because I can sense. do that in my day job. Yeah, exactly. You know? it certainly made a lot, a lot of sense um, of a very confusing period. Mm. So, you know, for people that aren't, including myself, who are not au fait with, with how the National Party works. Um, and, and you know what? Not that confusing. And when it came down to it, not that confusing no, after all. It was a bunch no. of really mm. ambitious people who who were really worried that they were going to uh, lose again. And, and, and it was just... Politics as you and there's nothing, there's no, no no mystery in it. It's politics as you and I know it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bunch sure. of egos, power, ambition. Um, yeah, well, so, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the, that that's all there is to things. Um, I'm, I've got to just 
pivot away from the book a little bit to talk about you, you as a as a reader as well as somebody you, you said up front that you're a, you're a voracious uh, consumer of of books, <laughs> um, and I think most, if not all, writers uh, get to writing through reading. Um, growing up, well, who were the authors that really grabbed your attention that you loved you know, oh, at the various I, stages of I really life. hate this question because I don't know about you, but I you know, I find it really hard to I, okay, so I loved Enid Blyton when I was a kid, right? Mm. That was The Magic Faraway Tree is still the greatest book I've ever read and <laughs> will ever read, I think. I just loved it. Um, but I'll probably get cancelled. Will I get cancelled for that? Do, do Are we cancelling Enid Blyton now? Well, or? it'd be pretty anachronistic to okay. apply that to when you were a kid because we were all reading Enid Blyton. But, but I think it's fair to say if either of us read her today, there would be moments where we would have to read nah. through our through our fingers as we wince at some of her um, yeah. thoughts. But that, that, that's, you know, another another time and place. She was certainly yeah. a, a ubiquitous author for kids in, in our sort of generation. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, no, I, 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 and obviously I went through school, I did literature at university, read all the classics, all the usual. And and so now I, I but I, do, I find it really, I really can't, I can't answer that question, who's your favourite author? I find that really difficult. Okay, that let, it, me narrow, let, me, let, let me make it easier. No, this is not much easier, but I'm going to narrow it down a bit. Given that it's a country that produces per head of cap, per head of population by far the most brilliant writers of the English language, who are your favourite Irish authors? Oh, uh, I don't know, Phil. It's really hard to. I. It's really hard to say. <laughs> I'm really going to let you down here. Do you know what? Do you know what? I, this is this is the most pretentious, wanky thing I probably have ever said in my life. But do you know what I really, really what I always come back to? What I really love is the poems of Haney, um, oh, Haney. Oh, magnificent! And Yeats. Can't, yeah. can't can't get a yeah. I just like I just love them. I just love them. And I've never been able. Um. I've never been able to write poetry. Obviously, I had to I had to study it at, at uni and and um, at school. And I just to be able to create really good poetry, just like it's such an incredible skill. I just yeah. So they're so evocative, and they, you know, like a good Haney poem. God, on a bad day, it can make you cry. Oh, he, <laughs> Being he, homesick, he you know. So, so yeah. sorry. That is, the, and my dad would cringe and cringe at hearing me say that. <laughs> but, um, but I do. I actually do read a lot of. Um, I actually, this is probably a sign of my constant yearning for home. But I do read a lot of. I re, I read a lot of books about the troubles. Um, so I think maybe, I, I guess um, because we're we're twenty five years on from the from the peace agreement from the Belfast agreement and it's just really because I've been home a couple of times in the last year and obviously with the pandemic really made me miss home and I, and I, and it was such a formative time in my life like it's had such an I guess maybe that's probably why I report on politics now because because I've seen the importance that politics can have in people's lives like how it really was life and death then, and um, so I do. I'm constantly reading about um, about the troubles and about the about the past and the present. I guess um, in Northern Ireland, I guess to try and understand more, or I don't know if it's a homesick thing, or yeah. So I'm all I'm always reading like um, 
there's a great book that I've now forgotten the title of, Killing Thatcher, which I just finished a few weeks ago, which is an amazing account of the Brighton bombing. Oh, my God, it's so good. And then there's books like... Um, uh, there's an there's just it's such a special book. It's um, it's it's called Lost Lives, and it's basically an account of everyone who died in the troubles. So all those deaths, and it's like takes it out of the politics, and it's a really human story. And it was written by um a bunch of people, but one of the people involved was David McKittrick, who my dad my dad's a journalist as well, was a journalist, and so he worked with David. Um, what else? There's there's an account of um written by New York. I'm terrible with titles of books as well. This is dreadful. Um, honestly, if you to- ask me what I was reading at the moment, I couldn't tell you the title of it. Um, but a New York Times journalist wrote the, an account of the, the disappearance of Jean McConville, which is an incredible book, which is so it's amazing for someone to from outside Northern Ireland to write such a, you know, such a great understanding of what is a very complicated little corner of the world. Um, I love British politics, so I read a lot. Um, I read a lot of books about British politics. Like it's probably the thing that I, you know, on your Kindle where you get the books recommended for you. It's always um, so. I love that um, Andrew Ronsley's "The End of the Party." That's a, I love that yeah. book. I think it's fantastic. That, I mean, that's the kind of book I wanted to write. I, I'm not saying it was anywhere near as good as his, but um, I'm c- currently trying to get my way through. Um, Selden's book on Boris Johnson. I've, I think I've read every, almost every book that's ever been written on Boris Johnson because I'm fascinated by him. Um, and I'm honestly, it's a good, really good book. I'm really finding it. It's quite difficult. To, it's quite long and incredibly detailed. So, um, so what I do is I'll I'll, I'll read a um, I'll read an important, serious political book, and then I'll I'll read like a thriller. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. like. Um, because that's how I get to sleep at night is reading. I can't, I can't not, I can't go to sleep if I haven't read something. So, so that's what I'll do. I'll read an important, serious book that teaches me stuff, and then I'll, I'll, um, and then I'll read a thriller. So I, I just finished a book at the weekend, which I was just telling my husband about. It's a cracker. I can't tell you the name of it, but um, but it's a woman who goes on a cruise, and she wakes up on the first morning, and there's no one left on the ship. And it's a ridiculous book, but it's great. It's like a Mary Celeste story, but for the modern age. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's probably not going to win a Booker Prize, but God, it was good. I enjoyed it. I didn't. I read it on a Sunday afternoon, and I was done. (laughs) Yeah, well, it would be pretty cheap uh, to cast it if they make a movie version, wouldn't it? Well, I'm not going to give any more away. (laughs) But it was. It was. I couldn't even tell. Oh, it was called The Last Passenger, and I really enjoyed it. And you know what? I'll probably Steve Bronis will probably mock me relentlessly for it, but. It was a good read and kept me busy. Oh yeah, whatever, what, what you know, whatever uh, keeps you engaged. Uh, who cares what the you know so-called status or whatever of the. Oh, speaking of speaking of different genres, mm. um, if you could write, and by the way, listeners, uh, we'll track down the the title of that other book and include it in the notes wherever you're. F- Finding this podcast so that you can. Oh yes, I'll do that. Sorry, that was. No, 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 um, that's fine. That's fine. Um, Whitehall. That's another great book about British politics that I should have mentioned. That's a great. That's like a seminal book of you. If you haven't read Whitehall, you would enjoy it. I think you would recognise a lot of your former life in in Whitehall, Peter Hennessy book. Right. Oh, great. Okay, fantastic. Uh, And I'll be meaning to. You you mentioned Killing Thatcher a few weeks ago in a conversation we had. I'm definitely going to track that down. Oh, such honestly, it's such a good book, and the detail given the passage of time—I don't know how he did it. It's bloody incredible. It's such a good book. Great, thank you. Um, 
So, the final question about, uh, well, writing. If you could, if you could, if you could write in another genre, your choice. Yeah. What would it be? I don't know. I guess maybe, um, maybe. I don't think I could do it, but I guess it would have to be fiction, right? I mean, I don't know. What, what... kind of fiction? A cozy mystery novels or? Or a, uh, a, a, a police thriller based in Belfast. I mean, I, I don't know. What, yeah. a, pacey, a pacey political thriller. Pacey political thriller, yeah. No, no, no. I don't know. I like a, I mean, who who wouldn't want to write an amazing book that wins all the awards and Booker Prizes and all that kind of stuff? But I, that's definitely not me. I'm just a tabloid hack. So, well, you um, know, James Comey, FBI director, was sacked by Trump. Some people mm. say he, he lost the election for Hillary. Um Whatever you think of James Comey, he's just released a, a a legal thriller that is just objectively awesome. Is it good? Yeah, the guy. I, yeah. I was so hesitant, thinking this is just he's leveraging his name recognition. He's probably had it ghosted. It'll be rubbish. It's a brilliant, riveting, rollicking read. And uh-huh. He's he's it's been so well received and and sold so well that he's said that he's not, that that's his career now. He's a he's a uh, legal thriller writer. So I can't remember the title again. I'll put it in the show in the show notes. But um, if you like that kind of fast paced contemporary legal slash political thriller, it's right up your alley. See, uh, what I like in a book is is I like it when it transforms me, takes me to another world, particularly another country. So I I haven't I love to travel, and so I love I love it when you go to another country and then you like it's scoopfuls of books on the uh, armfuls of books on on that country and then you mm. and it takes you to that country and you read you know I, lo- I love that I love books that and but also books that um you know are phenomenally well researched about a subject that I wouldn't even like I read a thriller recently set in Finland I was a few months ago and it was set in Finland and I've been to Finland but I hadn't really thought about what it was like to live in rural Finland and snow and, and, and just all these fascinating details about how, like even how you get about and how you how you keep warm and the food they eat and I just really like that's what I love about reading it. It it teaches you so much about stuff that you haven't wouldn't even have thought of, you know? Like with you and your your obsession with religious books, like mm. you, you know, you know, vast amounts of the weirdest stuff just because <laughs> the, because the the book transports you there and it's so and, and you do it from with a mug of coffee from your sofa. Like how easy is that? It's 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 remarkable the the access to you know, if you want to pursue any subject uh, and you've got, and you're good at you're good at assessing the quality of sources. Um, you know, there's no end to the edification mm. available for us in this day and age. We complain about it a lot, but gee whiz, it's, mm. it's better than when we had to queue up at the Potidor Library to get a copy of uh, Adrian Mole. Um, <laughs> I used to love that though. My librarian was just the Whitehead Library. She was the best lady ever. Oh, who doesn't love? Uh, their local library and their <laughs> library staff, they're, they're golden. Um, thank you for the time. It's, we've gone a bit over because I didn't want to take take up too much of your time, but I do have one contemporary politics question. This is not a politics podcast, certainly not a partisan podcast <clears throat> one way or the other, but I do have one question, and it's this. In Blue Blood, um, you used accurately, I think. I'm not criticising this whatsoever. You used the phrase "immense political talents" to describe the key era National Party. Does the Luxon era 
warrant a similar description? <laughs> you know the answer to this. I think anyone who's read my columns knows that that's not true. I think Christopher Luxon has other skills. Um, that and you know what? If being an immense political talent and not actually achieving anything for your legacy is what is what happens, then what is it worth? You know, like I think if Christopher Luxon isn't the best politician in the world, if he's not polished. If he becomes comes across as a bit odd, um, if his heart's in the right place, if he's got the right prescription for the country, I'm just saying that if if his heart's in the right place and and um, then if you know if he's not polished and and um, and you know he's not he's not the, the the media personality that we all seem to crave these days. And is that such a bad thing? I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, are we ready for a whole new era of politics? Maybe that would be a nice thing. Great. Well, I, as you can imagine, I've got a lot I can say about that, but I'm not going to, because that's not my, my remit. <laughs> I was here. being diplomatic. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not my remit here. Um, and I just want to say before we wind up, because you did mention uh, that you, have you, you spend a lot of time reading and thinking about the troubles um, and, and not to mention lived experience. And I felt that we as your as readers uh, really benefited, benefited from that, uh, in particular in a column you wrote a couple of weeks ago um, reflecting on the treaty and I guess threats to uh the treaty and what I think the bipartisan political consensus around the treaty uh that that are, that are embodied in particularly in the act party in your column uh, I think we benefited from that that was that was um reflected the wisdom gleaned from lived experience and oh. careful thoughtful consideration of What's at stake? Well, thank you. And I, honestly, I really um, struggled with that column because I, I wanted to write. I wanted to write it for ages, and you know, you and I back and forth. God, I can't. I think even since Seymour gave that speech, we've been talking about about how the, the implications of of this debate like weren't really fully explored. So, but it's for me as as a Pakeha European. Like, I, I mean, the Irish experience is obviously its own unique thing um we have our own experience of colonization etc cetera, etc cetera. but i just it's really hard as an outsider to write about um maori issues like it just feels a bit presumptuous but anyway i dived in because i've just felt like there was an absence of comment and yeah and and god the emails phil you should see the inbox they're still coming in <laughs> well i mean if there's one if i could wave a wand um and change anything at the moment it would be this culture of piling on journalists. It's uh, frankly disturbing to me. It's a big uh, problem. And it's it, a huge problem. And anyone who thinks it isn't unfairly applied to women in journalism isn't paying attention. It's a, it's a really strange... I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been getting a lot of grief and I, and I have the skin of a rhinoceros, as you know, but I, I do really worry about... Um, I do really worry about our our younger journalists coming through, like the especially the younger political journalists. Like I don't know, how to, I don't know how to handle it. It's insane, but it's a weird phenomenon that we're in now, where we 
previously people would attack the outlets, so they'd attack stuff, they'd attack the New Zealand Herald, they'd attack TVNZ, but now they go, they go for the real, the personal, they go for the yeah. reporter, they go for the byline, and it's like, well, what's the end result of that? Do we do we do we remove the byline? Do you really like want to not know who's yeah, writing yeah. these stories? Because yeah. that's where the position that we're going to end up. But but how do we get how do we get there? Is it a post-Trump phenomenon? How do we how did we end up from from the individual reporter being the the source of of ire? Because the reporter doesn't make the decision to publish. Like we have a lot of autonomy in what's written, but there are, believe it or not, there are still editors and gatekeepers before the final thing is published. So yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really strange um, chapter that we've entered, I think, and it's just like it really concerns me in the run up to the election. It's pretty horrendous. I have a last thought for you. Yeah. I remembered a book I was going to tell you about when you when you asked right. about um, about the gallery and what it's like to work at well, what it is like to work in the gallery. There's a really good book that was written in the 70s. You'll probably know um, it's it was, it's an account by a Rolling Stone magazine journalist called The Boys on the Bus. Oh yeah. And, and I don't really think, you know, like membership of the club was its own credentials. And it was like, there was there's influential people in the pack that drive the coverage, the narrative. And I don't really think, I mean, it's a bit different now. We don't, we don't drink as much and there's more women in the pack. They be the boys and the girls on the bus, or maybe just the girls on the bus. But, um, but I don't think a lot's changed really. Since. No, I mean, boys on the bus um, <laughs> pioneered that, genre of campaign uh non-fiction yeah um it's a master it's a masterpiece it, it really is, is. Yeah. And, and as you say for all that it was I, I can't remember uh what year precisely but it, as you say it was the 70s i think 73 because uh, it was um it was the 72 election yeah yeah presidential election yeah uh it you can read it it feels it feels as fresh as Anything you could read in a newspaper. It's 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 one of those books, the timeless quality of which is demonstrated mm. by the freshness, the enduring freshness of the prose. And also, yeah. as you said, that the insights about the whole industry, if you like, of politics, yeah. reporting about politics, hasn't changed. The, the no, isn't that weird? Because it's, yeah. it's nearly 50 years. Like, yeah. Of course, elements of it have changed. TV, 24-hour news, the, the, the pace and... Um, but the fundamentals of it, it's weird how it's the same. And it, and it's, I, I suspect, I mean, I, it's not that I've worked in every political gallery um, in, in the world, but I've worked in a few, kind of cover politics in a few places, and, and it seems to be the lobby or the pack that that forms around the politicians, that seems to well, be the well, same. I've been lucky to work in three parliaments, um, and the things they have in common form a far longer list than the differences. You know, mm. um, Victorian State Parliament, the Australian Federal Parliament and New Zealand Parliament. The, the accents aside, they're pretty indistinguishable. Yeah, it's uh, funny, isn't human it? Human nature, I think, plays quite a big part in this Hollywood for, what did we decide? Average-looking Hollywood. people. Show business for ugly people. Show Hollywood. Business Hollywood. For, yeah. All right, it's been great to chat, Andrea. Thank you. And I hope that you're publishing again soon and what's we'll more that if and when you do and even if you don't, that you'll join us at Featherston Booktown next year because you'll, as a book lover, uh, there'll be no greater weekend on the calendar for you, I'm sure. So thank you for your time and uh, good luck with uh, the months ahead.
My pleasure. Great to chat. Good luck with the festival. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>